Welcome to Bipolar Bicoastal. I'm Anna. And I'm Maria. We're twins living on opposite coasts. Here to talk about navigating life while bipolar. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Patricia Sullivan, a psychiatrist, on to talk to us about being a psychiatrist and all things psychiatry. So welcome. Thank you. People are always asking us questions where we're like, we just cannot like even start to answer them because obviously we're just patients. We're not anywhere close yeah. to mental health professionals. So I'm so excited. I know that a lot of people listening are going to be so excited as well. So thank you so much for agreeing to come on. You're welcome. And I was wondering if you could just tell us like a little bit of your background, like where you went to school, how you got into psychiatry. And also, I'm curious about how you decided to be a psychiatrist because uh, this is such a stupid question, but everyone goes to the same medical school, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So take it away. <laughs> so I assumed I was going to be a, probably a primary care doctor. And then oh. as a part of third year medical school, you do these rotations. And mm-hmm. after I did my 12 weeks of surgery, I wanted to do something really easy. So I was doing psychiatry and it was in a state um, psychiatric hospital in downtown Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Oh my and gosh. <laughs> I loved it. It just, I was like, this is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. If this isn't right, nothing else matters, you know, with the body and the brain. Mm-hmm. And so I, but I was surprised. That's wow. how I got into it. Was it easy or was it like, because I would imagine that too sounds like such an intense assignment. Yeah, well, it was back in the 90s. Everything was very slow moving anyway. So oh. it wasn't, you know, I was a medical student. What was I doing? But yeah. So I, I was, mm-hmm. I, I went to residency in mm-hmm. Richmond and then mm-hmm. I, um, worked in an inpatient hospital for two years in Denver. And I worked mm. for four years in a community mental health center outside of Cleveland. And um, oh. when we moved to the Maryland area, I wanted to work at a community mental health center with uh, that population, but the mm. setup wasn't good for that. So I, I joined a guy's private practice, which I, and I worked with him for nine years and I've had my own for 11 years. Oh, my oh wow. Um, and, Full disclosure, we know Dr. Sullivan through her daughter, Darby, who's a, a patron, if you want to subscribe to our Patreon. Um, but uh, so was And also Darby... one of our good friends from And one of our good friends. But I'm wondering, was, was Darby not born in Maryland then? Was she... Right, she was like... born in Denver. Oh, oh that's interesting. I, I was listening that. to she was born in um, Shady Grove. And which medical school did you go to, if you don't mind me? University of Maryland in Baltimore. Oh, cool. oh nice. Anna's um, going there for... Social work right Social now. Work oh, great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I tried to get a COVID test on campus at the, for like the medical center and they would not let me. They're like, you needed to be on the waiting list a month ago. And I was like, oh, okay, got it. <laughs> Interesting. Because you're a student, Anna, you thought you could do it. No, it was before I was a student. I just... Oh. Sorry, this is way off topic, but oh, the it was information around COVID testing is so hard to find. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. That, they, I know they were also obviously swamped. They so couldn't answer the phone, but yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyways, okay. <laughs> so you so you've been practicing for in private practice for twenty years, and then you've been doing it for yeah a lot longer than that. Wow, that's so <laughs> yeah. impressive. Twenty six years, twenty seven <laughs> years. Yeah. Okay. So say I'm somebody who has something going on. I don't know what it is. What do you think people should know before their first appointment with the psychiatrist? going into it, I guess, what's going to happen, I guess, at the appointment is what I'm asking. Well, um, personally, I like to hear kind of everything. So I like, I want people to talk and talk and talk. And I want them to tell me kind of the here and now what's happening, like what brought Mm -hmm. them in, but also just everything about their whole lives and where they came from and what, you know, just everything. And just to get that history, because I feel like that's what really Mm -hmm. helps me, you know, diagnose someone and treat them the best possible. So, you know, of course, if people have a list of medications they've tried and things like that, that's always really mm-hmm. helpful. But mostly it's say everything. Like, I want to hear everything. And is that common with psychiatrists, do you feel like? Because I've had some psychiatrists where they're literally just like, are you sleeping? Have you been diagnosed with anything before? And that's kind of like all they want to know. Family history usually too, right? Yeah. And then, yeah. 
Isn't it funny that, um, like, <laughs> I don't know, because it's such a one-on-one experience that right. mm-hmm. I certainly know other psychiatrists, but I don't know how they would be in the room with someone. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess if you're looking for a psychiatrist and you feel like you're not being asked enough questions or being listened to at your first appointment, there are other psychiatrists out there who will take the time to listen to you. And and I know what you're describing, that sort Mm -hmm. of just like just the nuts and bolts, you know, let's Mm -hmm. just do the kind of the checklist medical. But I don't know. I mean, I like to know my patients as people and Mm -hmm. um and usually I have hour, an hour to an hour and 15 minute first time appointments. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I just, I just, so I just got a new psychiatrist because I'm, I'm on Kaiser's insurance now. And if you're in the US, you know that Kaiser, you're back on Kaiser. Yeah, I'm back on Kaiser. Oh, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and we had a really long appointment, but we spent a lot of it talking about Washington, DC because the, I'm out in California and I'm, but we're from DC area, obviously. And he was just like talking about like how, (laughs) um, we were just chatting and he was saying how he missed, um, the crabs back in Maryland. And he's like, what do you call them? Rock crabs? (laughs) I was like, like, oh, it's blue crabs. He's like, yeah, I missed that. I missed that. I was like, okay. (laughs) Even still, like we had like a really long conversation. I think it was only like probably half an hour or something like that. And it was his first time seeing me. So I'm surprised to hear you say it's your appointments are longer. What do you go through to make a diagnosis for somebody? Do you have to have a diagnosis to prescribe the medication? Um, so I would tell you I have a diagnosis at the end of every appointment, essentially. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like it's a working diagnosis because, I mean, it's an hour, you know, mm-hmm. so do the best I can <laughs> with the <laughs> diagnosis mm-hmm. and with everything. But I really like to you know, kind of collaborate with the patient in terms of like, this is what I'm thinking. This is why I'm thinking this. And in terms of diagnosis and kind of put the pieces together, I want to hear what the patient has to, you know, has to say and think because sometimes like a family, they're like an 18 year old or a 17 year old, sometimes a family members there or sometimes even older. Mm -hmm. And that's like really helpful or a spouse partner for me to like get some other information about and and but I always like it on the table every there's no kind of like back channels just Mm -hmm. so that people sort of know why I'm thinking what I'm thinking but also that more information comes that I'm going to be flexible that's unfortunately kind of where we are with psychiatry which I feel like is a shame but kind of just Mm -hmm. that the field is primitive when you compare it to other fields because it's just mm. interviewing mostly. Right. right. You can't like get a blood sample and be like, that's bipolar disorder. Right. You mean, yeah. Interesting. And bipolar I, has so mm. many presentations that even, even that I'm like, well, we really should consider it, but you really do not have any symptoms right now. Like I'll say stuff like that or. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask about that. Do you feel like bipolar disorder is one of the ones where the diagnosis shifts the most often? Like, for example, for me, I started out with um, a depression, uh, just like a regular de- major depressive disorder diagnosis. Do you call that unipolar or monopolar <laughs> depression? We always get it confused. Unipolar. But you know what? Unipolar. I actually, yeah, just kind of call it major depression. But it is okay. the, yeah, yeah unipolar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, because okay. you're trying to French and they're like, we'd said it wrong every single time. But okay, so, yeah. and then I got prescribed Zoloft and then that triggered a manic episode. Mm-hmm. And then, so I got my bipolar disorder pretty quickly, diagnosed pretty mm-hmm. quickly after that. The journey from going from the, like, the major depressive diagnosis to the bipolar one was because of the medication I was prescribed and mm-hmm. like, I mean, I was so grateful to have, like, the clarity of a diagnosis afterwards, but it was, like, a pretty extreme way to, like, get that clarity. Right. And, like, yeah. I'm sure that's, like, something that you're constantly thinking about when you're going into those appointments. Right. Just even with mm-hmm. bipolar, there's such a high correlation with anxiety. Right. And there's so much overlap in the symptoms and, you know, and depression, too, can, of course, can be so prevalent. And then... Mm-hmm. That idea of like, if I'm going to sort of go treat the anxiety and worry about medications, it certainly happened to me and patients as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and then so for that, like for me, I was at school. So my psychiatrist was two hours away driving and we didn't have a follow up appointment until after the mania manifested and like that was an emergency situation. Mm-hmm. How often do you meet with people after like first 
prescribing medication or that initial appointment in order to like make sure that everything is going okay and then that's such a good mm -hmm. question because (laughs) so this is just kind of one of my neuroses is I always think people would not want to come back and see me. And I don't mean that like, I mean, I not, I mean, I know they want to see me and follow up, but, but I also feel like it, they're kind of like, ah, I don't really want to come. So, so I, so it can vary. I'll be, I'll say like, well, we could, we could meet in a month and they're like, could we do it sooner? I'm like, yeah, definitely. We could do it sooner, you know? So it's, but I'm like, you really want to, but, but it, it, so it, it's, it's, it really depends on the person because for like mm-hmm. some anxiety disorders, it's kind of like, you know, this incremental response to the medication. So right. I am happy to talk to people the next week, two weeks later, but also a little could happen by then. And so maybe they want to follow up in a month. So, but just my policy is always any problems, anytime, be in touch. We would have an emergency contact, you know. Yeah. So it it I don't have a hard and fast rule, but it probably depends on the severity of symptoms is what mm-hmm. I should say, whether it's depression mm-hmm. or. Yeah. And then once someone gets stable, we were asked about this by a listener. They were asking, like, once someone gets stable, is there still a purpose of going to see a psychiatrist? For, so for like for my treatment plan, I have to, I'm supposed to see my psychiatrist every three months. I'm on lithium as well. So I need to get blood work done and go mm-hmm. see him about it. Ideally, every three months, but I mean, it's obviously harder right now, anyways. Um, but do you like when someone's stable, do you still expect to see them, or like, do you think they should still check in? I know it obviously depends on the medication and the diagnosis, but yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so I, th- I would just say that varies too, because so now that I've been like in, you know, in Maryland for 20 years. Like I literally have patients some from for 20 years. And so mm-hmm. some people, oh. we got it down. They are stable. They're like thumbs up. And so some people I see monthly, some people I see every six months or 12 months, but mm-hmm. some of it depends on the meds they're prescribed and whether we need to do to have some of the contact for that. But yeah, so I don't have a hard and fast rule. It, it really depends on, but I can go six months for a lot of people, if everything's been going well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the intention behind that is just to make sure that everything remains going well. Is that the idea? The follow-up? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But then I, it's me. I think I like don't want to bother people by making. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting because we obviously like hear like our audience is people with bipolar disorder. And so to get that diagnosis, your therapist wouldn't necessarily be the one to give it to you. Most people have seen psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. So um, especially like as you're saying, if they're presenting it with severe symptoms, mm-hmm. you're going to go to a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. hopefully. Fingers should, crossed. Yeah. And so it's interesting because I feel like so many people, their qualms is their psychiatrist like not wanting to see them often or not wanting um, to. Yeah. Or, you know, you get your first dosage and then you're you can't tell if it's like working or not and so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about location or like from a patient's point of view like what they should be looking for um and like yeah like what what well and I should clarify like obviously if someone has had you know a new hospitalization new diagnosis of bipolar one I am going to want to have close contact with them like to in terms Mm -hmm. of like new medication new stability and often, you know, people are on more than one medication and just kind of getting it right. So, um, so I definitely have a lot of that follow up. Um, and, and it should be because when I went through training, people would decide to go in the hospital for two or three weeks to get a, a diagnosis and really get on a medication and have stability. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's 48 hours or, you know, it's, right. it, and so it's just right. done in such an outpatient way. Mm-hmm. And so then you really do need a lot of, a lot of contact. Right. Cause you're not being monitored to get stable. For me, it was, I was monitored because I, I was inpatient for, about a week after I checked myself in or I was checked in or whatever it was. So I was monitored 24 seven, obviously with Mm -hmm. the medications I put on. But even after that, I mean, there was still that journey of 
I was on Depakote and then the goal was always to get me off of Depakote because yeah. I'm a young woman and as you know it can cause infertility. <laughs> I was like, oh good, another little thing to worry about. Not infertility, <laughs> but birth de- or, potential for birth defects. Oh, oh but not okay. infertility. Okay. Yeah, I was told yeah. cysts on my ovary, but also like whenever I say something, I'm like through the lens of I was hypermanic getting this information so relaying it it's like perhaps i was not even told that but that's what my brain heard uh-huh, basically. exactly yeah um which actually um brings us into another question a lot of the concerns that we hear when we talk to other people bipolar disorder medication and pregnancy being bipolar obviously the idea of going off your medication for the duration of a pregnancy is scary i'm, I'm sure that there are some medications that are more pregnancy safe and less pregnancy Mm -hmm. safe. Can you speak a little bit about when someone comes to you with that concern and how you manage it? Yeah, I would tell you, I see so many women and Mm -hmm. which is great. And I see so many women of like childbearing age. And I Mm -hmm. love like having this open conversation about it because the thinking is really stability of the mother Mm-hmm. And, and making a thoughtful choice. And, you know, luckily now they've had more than a decade of kind of safety information about Lamotrigine in particular. So, oh, that's what I take. <laughs> isn't it great? I love that. I love Lamotrigine. <laughs> yeah. And, and because it was a seizure disorder and people didn't have the luxury of going off anti seizure oh meds gosh. when they were For pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> they would, you know, they fa- they found out that mm-hmm. it really had a lot of safety um, throughout pregnancy. So, so that's nice. And then they, you know, they just have more and more and more information about it. And what they always say is that there is po- potential three to five percent chance of birth defects mm-hmm. with any pregnancy. So three percent right. is what kind of with mm-hmm. any pregnancy. And then does a medication add to that? You know, okay. and so that's what Depakote has that problem where it would increase the rate up to five percent. So still that's showing ninety-five percent do not have a birth defect, but even that change, they freak out about Depakote. They say we should not prescribe it to pe- women of childbearing age, you know, if if possible. Um mm-hmm. but all of this stuff is weighed with what's keeping the patient healthy, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's so interesting. But there are other medicines too. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but just there are other mood stabilizers that just, um, where, you know, they used to freak out about lithium and this very rare Mm -hmm. cardiac issue that was possible. And then they have so many articles since then to say, are those numbers accurate? Is it really Mm -hmm. an issue if that's what's kept someone stable? And then OBs are so educated, OBGYNs are so educated Mm -hmm. now about Mm -hmm. meds too. So it's great when the patient can talk to the OBGYN and get this reassurance and talk to the psychiatrist and get the reassurance. Right. And that's so interesting what you're saying about that medication that was good for seizures be having to be pregnancy safe. I know that you're not yourself, obviously, a medical researcher. You're not testing um, medication on like that end of it. But do you think that's part of why it's pregnancy safe is because with a mental health disorder, it's treated as like, well, whatever side effects have to happen, have to happen. So if you need to go off, that, that's an option for you for those nine months because it's just bipolar disorder, not a seizure situation. Whereas obviously, you know, it can be really physically harmful to be untreated bipolar disorder, plus pregnancy hormones for nine months. I mean, the efficacy rate we know of suicide is so much higher when you're bipolar versus other diseases. I I feel like they've pushed back a lot about Mm -hmm. talking about these serious um, consequences of untreated depression or bipolar or Mm -hmm. other psychiatric illness in people with pregnancy. So before it used to be like, oh, we'll just stop your meds, all meds bad, you know, (laughs) no meds good, all meds bad. And now Mm -hmm. they're saying like, untreated symptoms are obviously very bad for the mother, but they're bad for the growing fetus. That's what they really can have identified. Right. Yeah, because I would think when you're in manic and hypomanic episodes, like you're not sleeping, your heart rate's like up a lot. You're not eating. You're not eating as yeah as much, mm-hmm. or at least I wasn't. Like I went um, when I saw a psychiatrist for the first time, I had been sleeping like six hours some nights, staying up all night other nights, or like two or three hours. And I also I I know like my 
my speech was like way sped up. And so I know like my heart rate was going quite high. And actually, it's interesting you said about like family members because Anna was at the appointment with me. And mm-hmm. obviously we're twins. So there's like the family history as well because Anna got her diagnosis about a year before I first saw a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. But I was um, the and first- I had my first... In our fa- I was the f- so with me there wasn't any known medical history of it so yeah. I think that's part of why my diagnosis took like a little bit of a different turn mm-hmm. sorry yeah yeah but well I was just, and that's all to say like she was in the room with me and uh, but I really didn't want my diagnosis like I really didn't want to be bipolar and I was in the middle of a hypomanic episode which I'd like you to explain the difference between manic and hypomanic in a second but I was like really like on top of the world and so he gave me Seroquel um to sleep. And I took it like once and I, and it was like a really high dose. So I like, like almost like passed out in the shower. So I just like didn't take it again. But do you find people being resistant to diagnoses? Does it, does that happen to you where people come in and are like, nope, that's not me and don't see you again? Um, I, I mean, I definitely think that's a possibility. I'm sure that has happened and it's uh, so much easier for for me to say, you have anxiety. And they're like, I know. And we treat it. And (laughs) that's easy. Or depression, like, yes, depression, you know, like, Mm -hmm. that's this term normal, you know, but bipolar, well, bipolar, you know, it, this, the associations are so extreme. And just like Mm -hmm. you mentioned being on lithium, that's another thing. When I say the term (laughs) bipolar, when I say lithium, some people are like, tell me more about it. Other people are, <gasps> you know, like, oh, the, Sylvia the, Plath, yeah. amazing. It's How did all that story the associate, yeah. and you know, mm-hmm. and so, um, you know, what I try to tell people in the room is like, okay, you know, your symptoms are your symptoms, which you've gone through and you mm-hmm. are familiar with. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you're going to turn into whatever this worst case scenario, or some people have a a, a parent with a serious psychiatric disorder that Mm -hmm. they've gone through a lot, just watching what they've Mm -hmm. gone, their parent has gone through a lot. And so they're in my office and I'm like, Hey, I think you have bipolar. And you know, and they're very resistant and they go, no, I don't because look at what (laughs) I know what that looks like. And Mm -hmm. yeah. And I did the same thing. I was like, I'm not in the hospital. I've eaten in the past like two days. Like I've, you know, like yeah. I've slept. So it's not that because when I saw Anna, she it was so sudden quick and, severe, and, yeah. and severe. Yeah. And I'm not saying mine wasn't severe because I I ended up going untreated for months. And so like there was a, definitely a lot of I ended up in the hospital because I had chipped out and I didn't take care of it. And I like had to be like on fluid. Like I'm not saying it wasn't severe, but mm-hmm. it wasn't like so dramatic you know like it wasn't so obvious well you were more um, functional i was more functional exactly that's yeah, a good way to put it yeah um and so i was wondering this is a bit of a pivot but would you mind explaining different types of bipolar disorder to us yeah and um and they actually you know actually if you have bipolar one it's easy to diagnose and get that um if with manic symptoms, it's easy to get the diagnosis because it's so, because it's more severe and because it's um, clear. And part of the diagnosis can be, and you ended up in a hospital, you know, for the symptoms and the, so what I would, I see it as, and I don't know if you guys would agree with this is some of it is like an energy state, a very high energy and a, a, a quickness about everything. So speech can be very quick. Thoughts can be very quick. Activity, ideas. Um, and so it's that energy state and then associated with what can, you know, you all know, like can be a surge of feeling really good, but it can also feel very unstable. It, yeah. So that being hypom- hypomanic, which is what, if you have bipolar 2, you'd never have gone to manic. You've only had hypomanic. And hypo means under. So it's just the manic is the most and hypomanic is less than manic. Mm-hmm. And so those symptoms, you can have this awesome sense of self and well-being and confidence and all the positives and energy and but um, people love that and don't want that pathologized, mm-hmm. but there's there's no holding it there. There's a, it, it can go up right. or down from that point. So, right. mm-hmm. and then the bipolar one does have the risk of um, like t- having psychotic symptoms as a part of it, um, mm-hmm. it which, which correlates with the diagnosis of um, manic, you know, and mm-hmm. bipolar one. 
And not everyone has that. And it, it's just a, it only means it, it's a symptom. It, it's a symptom, mm-hmm, yeah. but, um, so the impulsivity and the lack of sleep, like those are the critical kind of things that can happen. But some people are, mm-hmm. you know, don't tick off every box. The bipolar two, it certainly, I, I would tell you, maybe I see a lot more of that in my practice mm-hmm, where people, mm-hmm. you know, and they come in talking about depression because depression can go on and on and just there's so much suffering from it. Mm-hmm. And then just asking about symptoms, you know, then sometimes the hypomania symptoms are revealed. And then I don't know if you guys have heard of this. There's this um, this term depressive disorder, which so this is what I think of it as like this whole gray area. There's like mm-hmm. major depression. There's the bipolar one and two. And then they are there are these diagnoses like cyclothymia and stuff. But there's this gray mm-hmm. area called, well, it's called depressive disorder. And mm-hmm. what that means to me is for some reason, traditional antidepressants haven't worked or you have depression and a family history of bipolar or you have extreme irritability and depression, which maybe makes doctors think about bipolar Mm -hmm. more. Um, So that sort of that in-between zone, Mm -hmm. a lot of times the mood stabilizers can make a difference. Oh, interesting. Even though it seems like it's like depression, depression, depression. Mm Mm-hmm. But some of those people have been on many trials of antidepressants, and it it hasn't done the trick. And cyclothymia. Cyclothymia. Is, yeah, that's rapid cycling, right? Say it again. Is that rapid cycling? Is that the no, same? no, that oh. one's not rapid cycling. It's more like not as high as hypomania and not as mm. low as depression, but it's got that 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 um, mood shifting. Yeah. But it just isn't as severe. So in this, again, it's like in people will say like, well, my daughter's a teenager. I don't know. Is that normal? Right, you right. know, like they're moody. And so tracking that can be challenging. This is probably not helpful, but it's like kind of like bipolar three, a more mild on each end than even bipolar two is versus. Bi- OK, interesting. Yeah, I had never heard that term before. And bipolar uh, three is not a term to several. It's not a real thing. It's yeah. <laughs> just thinking yeah. of the gradations of it. But even you explaining all of that, it just seems having to make a diagnosis would be just so difficult whenever someone came in, especially like you're saying, it sounds like the most severe cases, the bipolar one, that diagnosis usually gets made in a hospital or something. Yeah. So like that's really obvious. I mean, you can you can tell. And what happened with Maria too, she was so charming to people who didn't know her. And then to people who did something's going on, especially with given my history of it. It was like, okay, I can see how like if this is your first time meeting this person, you'd be mm-hmm. wow, they're so gregarious and they just work hard, play hard, great kind of thing. And then she didn't really get like a diagnosis until after she was in the hospital, but it was for really severe like strep throat that she wow. was put into the hospital for. And I was like, you're, you're saying, I, Maria was like, you're saying, um, Dr. Sullivan, where it was because I was depressed. And I was like, this is awful. Like I, like you're saying, it just, it's, ter- it feels horrible. Well, so that's, that's when why you started like, wanting to get treatment for yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a huge burden. <laughs> like, like what? A, like what a responsibility to have to figure out. I mean, obviously, any doctor there's a lot of responsibility in the profession, but it's just so remarkable, especially because I feel like I don't know. This has been your experience, but a lot of people have very who have bipolar disorder have very antagonistic relationships with medication and the idea of seeking treatment. And we got a question too that was: Is it possible? to have bipolar disorder they didn't specify one or two but to be bipolar and to not be on medication and to treat it that way is that something you ever like have encountered or think could be possible i just like what you're saying i certainly have patients that want that so badly i mean Mm -hmm. meds are just can be so problematic um I, I feel like my job is to worry about all my patients. And (laughs) so I'm always, "Mm, I don't think that's a good idea. Well, certainly I, I just think the, 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 the likelihood of relapse is extremely high. That's just, that's just built into the diagnosis. So I can think of one patient and it was this scenario that led to the manic hypomanic episode. But still, I'm like, if you if your brain has ever gone there, your brain can go there again, even if you right. took steroids for a whatever, you know, that mm-hmm. made it all happen. And no, I can think of two patients now who have gone off and they're like, <laughs> well, I'm exercising and I'm meditating. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, 
okay, I think you should take meds though. You know, and I, <laughs> and I, I just feel like it's my job to say it, but yeah. I'm also like, I want to be your doctor. And so if, if things change, call me, I want to be there for you. So right. I would rather have people tell me straight up, I'm not taking my meds or I haven't been taking my meds or I hate my meds then because yeah. Sometimes I'm talking the whole appointment and at the very end, they're like, oh yeah, actually I stopped those like two months ago. And I was like, what? Why didn't you tell me at the beginning? <laughs> and you're like, okay, I've wasted my breath there. <laughs> yeah. You're like, well, just forget everything that happened. <laughs> awesome. It's so true that I feel like, you know, there's, in any medical situation, that there's always some kind of shame about it where you're just like, ooh, like I was supposed to be sleeping like this one. You're like, you're like, oh, yeah. like I definitely floss every day when I go to, but I don't know how these cavities keep happening. It's so weird um, because yeah. you, can't, you can't tell. Look at my teeth. I'm sure that I never fucking floss if I just don't tell you. It's so much easier but when it comes to mental health stuff obviously it's harder and I think especially because so many people have had such bad experiences with the psychiatric medical institution mm -hmm. obviously going to the hospital is necessary sometimes but I don't think that many people come out of it being like can't wait to go back sign me up for another experience it was really like empowering as a person to go through like that medical system um I guess what I I don't even know what I'm asking but I, like it I, I, I can definitely understand like the impulse to manage it without medication. And when we first got our diagnosis, I think we both were like, ugh, three meds. Yeah. Life is so different for us now versus a normal, like, you know, it's, it's such a small thing, but having to remember to take meds once or twice a day. Mm hmm that can't tell the number of occasions that you've been on where I was like, fuck, <laughs> like left him at home. I get calls from all over the country like, yeah. hey, I'm in Phoenix. And I'm like, yeah. no problem. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's a CBS 10 miles away. Like, do you mind? <laughs> Let me look up the address. <laughs> I'll be on hold for three yeah. hours. It's okay. Um, yeah. That just happened this past September too, um, to me. But, and then the other part of it too is once you're on those medications, it, oftentimes the advice from doctors is you can no longer partake in certain activities. I know that I have my understanding is there's like a pretty high correlation between bipolar disorder and addiction or alcoholism and the use of other like mind altering substances like marijuana is like not exactly encouraged. Like, can you speak to like what advice you give to patients about stuff like that? And is it possible to have a relationship with alcohol and weed and be bipolar and like how do you parse that out with people I guess what I'm trying to say that's such a good question I would what I would say if you have you if you have an addiction you you know you mm -hmm. should never you should never use just right. period mm -hmm. um and that like what you're saying is the rates unfortunately I mean I do feel like it's a burden to have the diagnosis because the, <laughs> the rates of these other things go along with it the yeah, anxiety yeah. Uh, and addiction yeah. and things like that and so just having the insight of what are the destabilizing factors, I think is really critical. And, 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 and I talk to people who even just, you know, they just have like different anxiety disorders and we talk about their alcohol or weed use. And mm -hmm. I'm like, do you, you know, cause some people years ago would say, oh, I'm going to a party. I'm feeling, I have social anxiety. I'm feeling a little nervous. I'm going to have a drink and go. And so some of these people, it really, blows up in their face, even if they're not misusing it, but alcohol use mm -hmm. or weed use can make them more depressed, obviously paranoid with some people or so I think if you don't have an issue with it, you know, if you don't have an addiction mm -hmm. and you're and you use it like a little, read your symptoms with the right. use to see mm -hmm. is it neutral? Is it kind of a negative? You know, mm -hmm. and but I, I probably don't I mean, I probably tell people with an addiction, do not use, but I, mm -hmm. I just know a lot of people are using and not telling me as well. Right. <laughs> I right. think I come across like a scold, you know, like an, like a mom or something. Yeah. Like a doctor. I think that's... <laughs> I think that's one of the more reasoned like things I've heard because I know when Anna got the diagnosis. I mean, I don't drink at all, anyways. Um, but like when Anna got the diagnosis, she was like, "Oh shit! Like I can't stay up anymore, and I can't yeah. drink, and I well, can't go out." And it like, just felt like you were saying that the diagnosis came, like you're saying, Dr. Sullivan. Um, it just felt like I, Anna, like it came with so much loss. The diagnosis mm -hmm. I gained so much in terms of oh, all of these 
months of my life where I felt like I am like the laziest piece of shit and mm -hmm. no one loves me like I get those back because I know yes part of it is work I have to do in therapy <laughs> like unlearning like self-hating messages and stuff like that but a lot of it was just I was depressed and I didn't know and like the cycles of it kind of made more sense although I had I never really had the fun mania that like other people describe but I hopefully never will um but the depression made more sense and so that, that was the blessing as I was, there's medication that can help with this and I've it's been four years now I mean knock on wood again and since I've had an episode it's which is a testament to my psychiatrist and my therapist that I've had over time myself I would say but um it was also a loss I was I was like am I not it was more so to is any behavior that I partake in now going to be viewed as irresponsible mm. based on this diagnosis? My family has had a lot more opinions about like, <laughs> my sleep habits and this, this, and this. And it all comes from a great place of worrying about yeah. not wanting something to happen. But for example, I just started grad school this um semester. I'm still working full time, which is obviously like a lot on my plate. Um, and I believe I can handle it, but it's, it's interesting now the amount that people feel like they get to have a say in what you do. Whereas, well, I have one sibling who also has it and one sibling who does it. And I feel like the questions are a little bit different, um, for like the two of us versus the other one. Not, mm -hmm. and it totally makes sense. The impulse, like you're saying, to like want to protect the person and all that. But yeah, there is definitely like a loss that comes with that diagnosis. Um, there wasn't really a point to saying that, I guess, but I just speaking to having to also be monitored at parties. Are you staying sober? If there are people who have opinions about it who don't necessarily know what they're talking about, thinking like it's not safe to ever have mm -hmm. a drink if you're on these medications, whereas that was never like told to you by anyone like who's actually in the medical field. I don't know. It's interesting, but I guess I agree with Marie. Like that's one of the more like, measured responses that I've heard to something like that. Cause I think a lot of times you just hear about people who are both bipolar and addicts and who can't find a healthy relationship with either mm -hmm. of them. And just like, we don't know where the bipolar comes from in our family. There's also no history of addiction that we're aware of. And I feel mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. it kind of makes things different, but that is good to look out though. Like in your family history, like bring up if there's addiction too, not just. And I don't know if you guys disorder. have, I don't know if you've noticed, but some mm -hmm. of my patients talk about like on their medication bottle, it will just say no alcohol. Did have mm -hmm. you ever seen that? Uh, I don't, I wouldn't again, cause I don't drink. Um, I wouldn't even like have noticed it, but Anna, do you I don't think I don't it's there but think so. I, patients bring that up and it can be with it's just something maybe they slap on but I, I just think it's kind of obnoxious because <laughs> so from the patient point of view they're like I didn't take my meds tonight because I was going to have a drink I was going to drink and and oh. because they don't know with that label if it means like there's a medically dangerous reaction yes. if they're on meds and drinking versus you know, it, you may be more sedated because if you drink and you're right, on meds or, you know, yeah. or you may have a problem with your diagnosis. I don't even know if they mean that, but so I always appreciate mm. patients kind of like bringing that up to me so that, right. that I can reassure them. It's not, it's, there's not a risk for a medically dangerous reaction, you know, with mm. meds and gotcha. drinking. No, that's true. Actually, I forgot. I would have, until you said yeah, it, but I when I thought that when I first took it, I remember calling um, my doctor after night of drinking, I, I had forgotten to take it because I was drunk. That's actually the bigger concern with me is like, um, obviously it's only happened like a few times, but cause I don't usually drink to that amount. But, um, I like called him the next day and I was like, am I still able to take these with the alcohol in my system? And he was, yeah, I mean, just take, take your normal dose tonight too. But yeah, you can take them now because of the medication I was on. You can't, obviously you shouldn't double up with every, if you miss a dose, you shouldn't always take a mm -hmm. dose to make up for it with a medication but in this case that was the case and yeah I had forgotten that was a concern that I had when I first started it was about them interacting like in a bad way um, and do then people think it's like antibiotics or whatever sorry go ahead. do people think it's like antibiotics where you get like way more like intoxicated when you take them yeah or? I don't know why the pharmacy puts it on there I mean certainly I get a lot of red flags because you, a lot of meds are you know they're brain meds they hit the brain they can, <laughs> can be sedating if you're on more than one and then if you take anything that is potentially sedating you could be more sedated you know I'll, right right but they're not saying that like say that you know if that's the <laughs> issue mm -hmm. 
yeah another thing like it's like a depression and a stimulant or like a depression or depression i guess is why i think that was my reasoning i was like oh you're not supposed to double up on depressants so no that's i think the good point is like if you're not doing well and you're socially or more than that drinking then i think that's a great topic to discuss Right. If you're mm. stable on meds and doing well and you have an occasional drink and it has no negative consequences, I think that's just a different. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. I think like what I'm really learning from this conversation is find a psychiatrist who trusts and believes you and also who you trust and have like a good rapport with. I think like that's what's missing. And a lot of the negative experiences that we've heard from from people with mm. psychiatrists is feeling like they are being scolded or they are being judged by the person who's supposed to be helping them. And I'm just thinking like, if I had a psychiatrist like you, I feel like I'd have brought up a lot more stuff a lot earlier in <laughs> appointments. And I'm sure not every patient you have feels as comfortable with you as I do throughout this conversation. But I think that's, that's, I would say like the big takeaway is perhaps it isn't like the medications that are the problem or the idea of medication. It's like the person who's prescribing them to you and like, are they taking your time seriously? Are they taking like your own thoughts and opinions seriously? Do you feel you can trust them with some of the less savory aspects of your life and care? For example, with my psychiatrist, which I need to find a new one, but I don't feel like I can bring anything to him because I know that he has judged me based on my weight gain, which is visually before. I know that he has a lot of opinions about me that I don't feel comfortable with him having about my body and things like that. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. That's okay. Well, it's not okay. (laughs) He got me stable, so I'm grateful for that. But yeah, he's probably not the best moving forward for me. Um, But it's not perhaps, and for some people, I'm sure it is the institution of psychiatry or the institution of medication, but perhaps a lot of it too is just finding someone who you feel comfortable with, just as comfortable as you would with like going through the same process that you would with a therapist to find like someone to give medications to because you do have to be open to them about certain things. It's not just like you're, I don't know, like another medical doctor where you don't have to be like personal with them in the same mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Do you, like, so if you're a patient, like, do you have any tips for, like, how to know if a psychiatrist is a good fit for you? Um, or I guess maybe you wouldn't know that as well because you're <laughs> on the other side. But do you ever have a patient where you're like, I don't think this is, like, a great fit? Or You know what? I am, yes, I have definitely <laughs> had patients like that. And there's there's this thing that there's they say from you know professional like hey if you don't feel like it's a good match you as a psychiatrist can say hey I, you know this was a first time appointment i don't think it's a good match and i but i just think what a blow <laughs> yeah. to any like how so could i harsh. say that to anyone you know like yeah. what a rejection and then you're like if they never seek treatment again is it my fault <laughs> <laughs> just like the messaging is so anti-therapeutic <laughs> yeah. like not trauma-informed in any way. yeah um okay and this is like switching gears a tiny bit but a lot of people like you were saying experienced fairly severe side effects with their medication um so and but i imagine for almost every disorder that you come across there's multiple medications that you can try or like dosages and stuff like that Mm -hmm. do you have any like tips for people who are like i don't think this medication is like a great fit for me i think i'm having this side effect is there like a certain level of severity should they be logging their symptoms what what do you want patients to bring to you when they're having that concern no that's good i you know i like to hear it all um my i would say my goal which maybe just sounds Uh, ridiculous would be you're taking medications, but you feel mostly like you, Mm -hmm. you know, that they're, they're preventing the bad stuff, but they're not impacting kind of the, the normal you. So that would be the goal. And there are side effects with everything and that sucks. So it it is some of it's well, you know, like, yeah, there's tons of stuff. There's so many mood stabilizers, but that changing can wreak havoc. Changing can put mm-hmm. people at risk of relapse. Mm-hmm. Changing could make things better, you know, like to make it more tolerable. Yeah. So I'll have people they are like, let's do it. And I'll have other people that'd be like, I can't take it right now. Like, I'm just going to deal with this and yeah. have the stability. And I get that. And that brings me to like another stereotype that I think a lot of people with um, 
maybe untreated or pre-diagnosed bipolar disorder have where they think it's going to like flatline them like medication. I imagine if someone tells you about that, you're like, oh, that's a warning sign. That's not a good thing. But do, do you mind speaking a little bit about that? That's not the goal. You know, certainly with other diagnoses too, it's I don't want to sedate someone Right. So they're not bothering anyone anymore. Right. You know, it's like, it's yeah. just, it's like they are them without the symptoms. And, you know, mm -hmm. so maybe they have a little sedation, but it's not that bad and they can still function. You know what I'm saying? But it's not mm -hmm. like to remove their personality. And, and I have seen some meds make people literally quieter where they're, they're not talking as much and, oh. and they're not mm -hmm. necessarily complaining about it. But I've seen them on on different meds and then kind of maybe have their personality back, like more of their engagement Oh, interesting. Back. Yeah. Interesting. Also, I imagine it's hard to, to parse out sometimes what is someone being depressed or coming out of mania versus what is someone losing their talkativeness or like personality too. And getting family history can really help with that where mm -hmm. the family's like, I don't like them on this medicine because they're not themselves. Oh, interesting. interesting. Would you recommend, like, I know that you mentioned it for sometimes like an 18 or 19 year old come in with them. Like, would you want more people to come in like with a family member if they feel oh, comfortable? Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And in fact, some sometimes it's even if, you know, people like write with their, you know, write a letter, write an email, just a mm -hmm. summary, whatever. It, all of that really helps with the patient's knowledge. And I would mm -hmm. like read it over with the patient to say, what do you think? Are they right or wrong or whatever? But yeah. All of that is really helpful. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, I have two last questions. My first, if that's okay, and are you are you comfortable with yeah, me? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, okay. Um, my first one is, so you've been in the psychiatric field for like quite a while now. Are there, what are like kind of like the big picture changes that you've noticed in your time practicing? Well, when I went through training, I had a lot of training in therapy and I think mm -hmm. that changed a lot. And um, many psychiatrists, uh, you know, just do meds. And I, I used to run groups, like even, you know, in Maryland mm -hmm. and love that. But I just felt like the need for just prescriptions and diagnosis. Um, and the more, I guess the less therapy I did, the less therapy I felt comfortable with. So I feel mm -hmm. like um, mm -hmm. that's one thing. So what other changes? I mean, I think that's See, a pretty like, significant one. That's a pretty one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm curious, like, what I've, like, also know about the field that it went from. Since there is more, like, pharmacology available and there are more medications, like, more of a push to put people onto them and not just trying to manage really severe symptoms, but just talk therapy. So, I mean, I think just speaking to you, it sounds like there's a real benefit to having a psychiatrist who's also comfortable with therapy and really has, like, a patient-centered approach to it. But, um yeah, I guess that's one of the downsides of like the the better medicines and the more access to medicines. Is that... So the other thing I'd just say is, mm -hmm. so this is just a weird perspective, but so when I went through training, psychiatry was definitely the um, looked upon as the worst profession to choose of all <laughs> the medical professions. Oh, wow. And, and so with that, they used to, um, insurance companies would pay all doctors, you know, all these rates, but then psychiatry was isolated out and paid at much lower rates, even though mm -hmm. your doctor or whatever. Mm -hmm. So what happened then was a lot of psychiatrists stopped taking insurance. And I don't know if you guys have come up across this with mm -hmm. patient right. psychiatrists who don't take insurance. So psychiatrists were like, well, we're not going to take this very low rate when you don't pay. So a lot of psychiatrists moved and so they don't take insurance so it, there's a real issue with finding psychiatrists in plans. And so I also, I take Medicare. I have taken insurances over the year, but right now I only take Medicare and then I'm out of pocket for everything uh -huh. else. And I feel like mm -hmm. what's going to come after me and what I wish I could do is, and I pursued this with Johns Hopkins I was, because Johns Hopkins has these multi-physician groups uh -huh. in these different locations. And I, and I called the president of that and I was like, why don't you have a psychiatrist in like where I could be a salaried physician? Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have to worry mm -hmm. about billing. Right. And I would just be one of the other many, many types of doctors in these facilities. And they just were not, a, you know, they have every other specialty 
They're just so still right. prejudicing. And, and it's crazy. You think that these other doctors wouldn't want a psychiatrist down the hall? Like, they would want it, you know? Right. It would solve yeah. so many so things I, for them. Yeah. The future, I think, psychiatrists will be salaried. Mm-hmm. And so then mm-hmm. access will be a lot easier. But there's been this weirdness my entire career. And I've felt like a disconnect because I'm alone. I have friends. I work with therapists. But mm-hmm. I haven't had that peer group, which I would have enjoyed, right. like as a right. part of a system that I think will be the case in the future. Yeah, that's good to hear. I I hope so. Cause it sounds like that would really solve a lot of problems. If you have someone come in for something, it's clear that something else is not right. I mean, they're not going to be able to sustain treatment for certain things like by themselves without psychiatric medication in addition to it. So, yeah, that's. <laughs> Not surprising, but like disappointing to hear that that is like such a stigma still about that mm-hmm. profession. Yeah. Okay. And then my last question is there like anything else that you'd want someone to know about psychiatrists or like any other like misconceptions or myths that you'd like to <laughs> dispel around it? You know, everyone says, are you a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Which ones can prescribe meds? You know, that's like a common, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it's psychiatrists. <laughs> I mean, I just, I've always. I don't know. I just have loved my job because um, even though I'm an introvert, I mm-hmm. talk to individuals one-on-one and mm-hmm. I really like to help people. And so, you know, it's been, you know, it's it, it very, very personal, very nice. I have, like, I love my patients. They tell me all this stuff. I learned so much from them about everything in the world. And anyway, it's just nice meeting a lot of great people, just working with a lot of great people. That's oh, thank you. That's awesome. Okay. That's amazing. I'm so happy to hear that. Um, and my, I guess my, my last thing is if somebody is listening to this and wants to like see you, is there like, do they just look up Dr. Patricia Sullivan? Is that how they find you online? Or? Yeah. Okay. And you practice in it's, uh, uh, Columbia, Maryland. Columbia, Maryland. Okay. Great. I mean, thanks for coming on. And I'm sorry. I have else? one last question. And are you taking patients okay. remote right now? Is that what's happening? So, Interestingly, I have always been taking new patients and I don't know why that is because I hear of other psychiatrists that are like not taking new patients. I'm like, what is that about? (laughs) Yeah, I want to work one to five Mondays and that's it. So you're and you're doing it over like uh, Zoom. Is that how you're doing it right now? Yeah, I do a lot of FaceTime, you know, just Mm -hmm. Zoom FaceTime mostly. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. I feel like psychiatry is a good one to do because you don't have to be like, oh, and then where's that mold that you were like telling me about? <laughs> <laughs> it has worked. It has worked well. Okay, great. Well, hopefully in the future you can go back to being in person, but it's good to hear that you're able to still do it. All right. Anything else, Anna? No, I am just so grateful that you came on. I learned so much yeah. talking to you and it was just so interesting yeah. and so fun getting to speak for an hour so thank you for doing this and for taking time out of your sunday to do it really you're welcome it was great it. to see you too <laughs> great to see right. you thank you so much dr sullivan Goodbye. bye if you liked what you heard and want more you can get at least two bonus episodes every month for just five dollars by subscribing to our patreon patreon.com slash bipolar by coastal or you can email us any questions, comments, or concerns you might have at bipolarbicoastal at gmail.com. Your emails are truly the highlight of our week. You can find us at facebook.com slash bipolarbicoastal or on Instagram at bipolarbicoastal. Thank you to Mia Thoreau, who did our show art, Hannah Dorfman, who does our music, and Evie Davis, who did our portraits. Goodbye! Goodbye!